Tonight we begin the story of one of the most remarkable characters in the book of Judges, and it's this great man, Gideon. When I say great man, even though God used him to accomplish great things, he didn't necessarily start out as a great man, did he? But we'll speak about it as we get into the text here. Verse 1. Then the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord delivered them into the hand of Midian for seven years. At the end of chapter 5, verse 31, it says that the children of Israel enjoyed 40 years of rest. That's a long time. They had a great respite during this time that they had turned to the Lord and repented and seen God's deliverance in the days of Deborah and Barak. But it didn't last forever. And now we see in chapter 6, verse 1, they came once again into bondage because, it says, the children of Israel did evil. Therefore, the Lord delivered them into the hand of Midian. Make no mistake about it. Verse 1 makes it very plain to us that God brought Israel into bondage through the oppression of the Midianites. You see, this was an example of God's grace, of God's mercy to Israel, because that oppression would make them turn back to God. It would have been worse if God just left them alone. But God wasn't going to leave them alone. And he allowed the oppression that came from the Midianites to call people's hearts back to him. So take a look, verse 2. And the band of Midian prevailed against Israel. Because of the Midianites, the children of Israel made for themselves the dens, the caves, and the strongholds which are in the mountains. So it was, whenever Israel had sown, Midianites would come up. Also Amalekites and the people of the east would come come up against them. Then they would encamp against them and destroy the produce of the earth as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance for Israel, neither sheep nor ox nor donkey. For they would come up with their livestock and their tents, coming in as numerous as locusts. Both they and the camels were without number, and they would enter the land to destroy it. So Israel was greatly impoverished because of the Midianites, and the children of Israel cried out to the Lord. Here we see in these verses, verses 2 through 6, the heartbreaking description of the bondage and the oppression that the Israelites lived under. And in my mind, it is absolutely heartbreaking. First of all, if you noticed it in verse 2, where were they living? They made for themselves the dens, the caves, and the strongholds. Ladies and gentlemen, the oppression of Midian coming again because of the sin of Israel, it brought Israel into a place of utter humiliation. They weren't living in houses. They went out and lived in caves. They lived in holes in the ground. They had to be humbled. They had to live as cave dwellers instead of improper uh, dwelling places because God needed to humble them. I want you to notice that it's only at the end of verse 6 that we read that they cried out to the Lord. They, they lived in this humble place. They lived in this humiliation for a long time. Isn't it shocking what it'll take to break us before God? It's amazing how stiff our necks can become, right? Right? before we'll bow down to the Lord. I might be speaking this evening to some stiff-necked old sinner. (laughs) Listen, God will wait you out. You don't think you can go lower? God will bring you lower. You know, how about that? It's just a terrible condition that they're in. And and if you notice, verse 3 describes it so graphically. Whenever Israel had sown, the Midianites would come up. 
Now, the Midianites were a group that weren't exactly a nation. They were more of a nomadic tribe. And so they would come and sort of sweep through sections of Israel and dominate them. And they would basically wait for that Israelite farmer. Can you just picture him in his, lie, in his, in his crops there? He, he cultivates the ground very carefully. He plows it. He puts a lot of work into it, right? And then he goes through a lot of effort to plant it. And, and then he worries about the rain and he prays for rain to come and he does everything he can. And then he watches those little green plants come up out of the ground, right? And grow bigger and bigger and his heart soars. Oh, it's going to be a good crop this year. And then he works very, very hard to harvest the grain, right? It's a lot of work. And at the end of it all, after all that time, after all that investment of capital, after all that investment of his labor, what does he have to show for it? He brings in a beautiful harvest, right? And his silos and his, his grain storage places are just filled with beautiful grain. And then what happens? The Midianites come and steal it. Doesn't that just drive you crazy? Is it one of the worst things in life? Unrewarded labor. I think, about, I think about that when I think about guys who work in the building trades, right? And I think about that poor guy in the building trades that bids the job too low, right? Something happens, you know, it's beyond his control. He bids the job too low. And what does he do? He was working for nothing, right? There's, he's worked really hard, but it's just for nothing. That's what it was like for the Israelites all the time. So bad. You saw it there in verse 4. They left no sustenance for Israel. Nothing. There was nothing left behind. See, Israel's sin made all their work profitless. All their produce, all their livestock was stolen. They worked very hard to bring it to fruition, but they never enjoyed the fruits of it. Now, friends, this is a remarkable picture for us of what sin does in our lives. Sin will rob you of the fruits of your hard labor. There are many accomplished men and women who have lost everything because they won't stop their sin. Everything is lost in order to gain what you look back on and see it's nothing. I lost everything for this. But that's how it is. Sin is a thief. It'll rob from you. And let me tell you, just like the Midianites, sin is a pitiless thief. It has no pity upon you when it's robbing you doesn't say, well, I'll leave a little bit behind just to make you happy. No, it'll steal everything from you if you let it. So they came down, verse 5 says, that both they and their camels were without number because the Midianites had such domination of Israel. They just flooded the area. And then finally, verse 6, and the children of Israel cried out to the Lord. Oh, there was a great season of humiliation. There was a great season of fruitless labor and deprivation and poverty and domination by an oppressive power. But after all of that, one day Israel wakes up. And what do they do? They cried out to the Lord. I don't know if this resonates with you. I'm, I'm ashamed to say it, but it's true. It resonates with me. How often with me is prayer the last resort instead of the first resource, Right? Okay, everything else. We've tried to fix the problem a million ways. We've suffered under the, the, the deprivation and the ravages of sin and its effects for so long. All of that, it's all gone. All right, I guess I'll cry out to the Lord, right? How different it would be if they cried out to the Lord from the very beginning. They wouldn't have found themselves in this situation. 
But look at what God does. Verse 7. This is fascinating. Now, you might be thinking, okay, uh, they cried out to the Lord at the end of verse 6, right? Now, you might be thinking, verse 7, and thus the Lord sent Gideon to deliver us to them, or something like that. No, look at verse 7. This is fascinating. And it came to pass, when the children of Israel cried out to the Lord because of the Midianites, that the Lord sent a prophet to the children of Israel who said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, I brought you up from Egypt, and I brought you out of the house of bondage, and I delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians, and out of the hand of all who oppressed you, and I drove them out before you and gave you their land. Also I said to you, I am the Lord your God. Do not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but you've not obeyed my voice. Now that's a remarkable statement. Before God sent them a deliverer, he sent them a prophet. Because this wasn't just a matter of, okay, we've got to strategize this. We've got to get the right military strategy. Let's get a commander who can really get together a good army and fight against those camels, right? Because the camels were freaking everybody out. And what are we going to do against all that? No, no, no. Before any of that, before the, the, the battle could be fought in the natural world, there had to be a battle fought in the spiritual world. There had to be an invisible war fought. So what did the Lord do? Verse 8 tells us that the Lord sent a prophet. The delivering judge would appear later. But before Israel could receive and respond to the work of that heroic judge, they first had to be prepared by this unnamed prophet. Isn't it wonderful here that this prophet is never named? I think that's beautiful. I can't wait to get to heaven and meet this prophet. Although I'm going to be kind of discouraged in heaven if there's about a dozen guys claiming to be this particular prophet. (laughs) No, in heaven nobody lies, so that's not going to happen. Listen, isn't it beautiful? Isn't it beautiful that this man was used in such a critical place in Israel's history? Absolutely critical. A turning point. God used him to prepare the way for a great deliverer. You don't even know his name. I think that's a beautiful thing. Verse 8, notice what he says. I brought you up from Egypt. Those were the first words of the prophet. Speaking as from the Lord. In other words, the first thing God wanted Israel to know is... Look at how I delivered you in the past. I brought you up out of Egypt. You see, the first thing that he did is he reminded them of all that he had done in the past. Because if they were going to face their current dilemma, Israel needed a reminder of what God had done before. You see, this reminded them, first of all, of the love of God. The God that loved us enough to free us from Egypt's bondage. He still loves us today. You know, that's a good starting point for a lot of us, right? You need to be reminded of how much God loves you. That's why I love pointing you to the cross again and again. No greater demonstration of the love of God in your life than the cross. You can't beat that. And so just as much as the prophet looked and pointed back to Egypt, look at the way God delivered you from Egypt. Look at how that demonstrates his love. So I would point you to the cross. Look at what Jesus did for you on the cross. Look at how that demonstrates his love for you. But not only the love of God, doesn't it also demonstrate his power? Because listen, you need to know that not only is God loving towards you, you need to understand that God is powerful to rescue you. You need to have confidence in the love of God And in the power of God. And reminding them of the deliverance of Egypt would accomplish both of those things. But listen, you say, okay, great. God loves me. Great. God's powerful. Then what's the problem? Do you see the problem in verse 10? But you have not obeyed my voice. Wake up call. 
God sent the messenger to tell them where the real problem was. It wasn't that God stopped loving them. It wasn't that that God stopped being powerful. No, the Midianites weren't so strong. That wasn't the problem at all. The problem was that Israel was so disobedient. I wonder if you were to take an opinion survey of Israel back in those days, and you were to ask people door to door, tent to tent, cave to cave, right? Wherever it was they were dwelling in those days. And said, hey, uh, can you please tell me why is it that Israel is in such bad shape? How many of the people responded would say, we're in such bad shape because we have disobeyed God and we need to repent before him? Are you kidding me? That's not the reason why my life is in shambles. My life is in shambles because, um, you know, it's the Midianites, right? It's somebody else. It's their problem. I'm a victim. Listen, you may be a victim. You're a victim of your own refusal to repent and turn to the Lord. This is what they needed to hear. They needed to hear that the problem was that you have not obeyed my voice. Friends, it's human nature to blame other people for the problems that we cause. You see, the message of the prophet shows that in verse 7, when Israel cried out to the Lord, they didn't really understand that they were the problem. You, You could be crying out to the Lord right now. Lord, rescue me. Lord, I need your help. And you're utterly sincere. And I believe you. You are sincere. You want God's help. You desperately want God's help. Here's the issue. You don't understand. You're the problem. You you want God to rescue you from this bad situation and that bad situation and this bad person over there. And all of that's true. But listen, what you really need to understand is God needs to rescue from yourself. From your own refusal to repent, your own hardness of heart, your own way that you in a dozen different ways, so subtle and obvious, you push the Lord God away. And so God confronted Israel very beautifully. And we're not told exactly what the response was. We're not told that Israel right then recognized or repented of their sin, but I think that they did. You know why? Because verse 11 tells us, That God sent a deliverer. Listen, when God's people are ready, God will send the deliverer. When God's people are ready to do business with him and repent and turn their hearts to him, God will send the deliverer. And that's exactly what he does, starting at verse 11. It's beautiful. It says, Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth tree, which is in Orphrah, which belonged... That's Orphrah, not Oprah. That would be in Montecito, right? No. Which belonged to Joash the Abizarite, while his son Gideon threshed wheat in the winepress in order to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, mighty man of valor. Gideon said to him, My Lord, if the Lord is with us, then why has all this happened to us? And where are all his miracles, which our fathers told us about, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and delivered us into the hand of the Midianites. I like Gideon already. Now notice that first of all, it says, verse 11, that the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth tree. Isn't that amazing? The angel of the Lord just kicking back under the terebinth tree. Oh, there's a nice shady tree. I'm going to go sit there. When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, we recognize this as another theophany, an Old Testament appearance of Jesus Christ in human bodily form before his incarnation in Bethlehem. Now, I need to be very careful. I want you to understand this. 
We can't necessarily say that every mention of the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament means that it was an appearance of Jesus Christ. I would say some clearly seem to be, others perhaps not. It is possible that the angel of the Lord is merely an angelic being. But the context here in Judges chapter 6 demands that we see the angel of the Lord being the Lord himself and being a personal appearance of Jesus before his incarnation. You see, the description of this whole encounter with the angel of the Lord shows that it wasn't merely an angel speaking on behalf of God. It was instead God himself appearing in a human form. Do you want some evidence of this? Look ahead to verse 14, where it says, Then the Lord turned and said to him, Oh, wait, I thought it was the angel of the Lord speaking to him. Well, it was the Lord who turned and said to him. And then look in verse 16. And the Lord said to him. Do you see how it's using it interchangeably? The angel of the Lord for the Lord himself. So again, I just want to emphasize, we can't say that every Old Testament mention of the angel of the Lord means that it was God himself appearing, but certainly some of them compel us to think this. So there on the one hand, you have the angel of the Lord just chilling, just relaxing in the shade of the terebinth tree. How beautiful is that, right? And then what's Gideon doing? Verse 11. Gideon threshed wheat in the wine press. You say, well, what's that? What's threshing wheat in a wine press? Okay, do you know what threshing is? Threshing is the process of separating the grain or the kernel of wheat from the chaff that surrounds it. Now look, somebody may think that I know something about agriculture. I really don't. I don't know anything. I just know what I've studied a little bit on this specific point, okay? So don't ask me any questions about agriculture that I don't know. <laughs> but I do know enough to tell you this, that around wheat, there's just sort of this, this husk, right? There's the chaff. And if you're going to eat the wheat and grind it into flour, you have to separate the wheat from the chaff. Well, the wheat is sort of heavy, right? If the kernel of grain is heavy, the chaff is very light. It's like this little husky shell that surrounds the little kernel of wheat. So what you have to do is you have to take these grains of wheat and you beat them or you crush them. And that separates the wheat from the chaff. But then you have to use some kind of wind or some kind of process to blow away the lighter chaff and let the, the wheat fall to the ground. Now, typically, I, I'm not saying they did this in every occasion, but typically this is how they would do this. They would go out on the top of a hill where there was a breeze blowing, okay? Do it late in the day where there's a nice little breeze blowing. And what you do, you, you would take these kernels of wheat and chaff all together, right? And you would take up a scoop of it and you'd throw it up in the air. And then the wind would blow the chaff away but the heavier kernels of wheat would drop to the ground. That's normally how it was done. But Gideon was so afraid that the Midianites were going to come, and what were they going to say? Hey, man, this is great. We'll let the guy finish, you know, threshing his wheat, and then we'll just take it all. Gideon's doing it secretly, right? He's doing it undercover. So what's he doing it? He's doing it in a wine press. What's a wine press? Well, basically, well, it's a place where they press wine. Okay, they crushed grapes in a wine press. Basically, it's a hole in the ground. Friends, can I tell you, this is a horrible place to thresh wheat. You don't catch any of that breeze, right? You'd have to supply your own breeze. 
One Bible teacher I heard, he, he pictured Gideon, and I know this is just joking around, but he pictured Gideon throwing up, you know, a, a scoop of grain and, and uh, chaff mixed together and then blowing on it, you know, to try to, you know, separate. No, I don't think Gideon did that. But it, look, this was hard, fruitless work that he was doing. This was very, very difficult. And why was he doing it there? Because of fear of the Midianites. That's all what it was about. So threshing wheat in a sunken place like a wine press, it's just lame. You'd never do it that way unless you had to because you were so afraid of the Midianites. Now, don't you love this? Verse 12. Here's Gideon doing this unbelievably pathetic thing of trying to thresh wheat in a wine press. The angel of the Lord's just kicking back in the shade. And he calls out and he says, The Lord is with you, mighty man of valor. I can imagine Gideon just says, you got to be kidding me. First of all, I don't feel like God is with me at all because I'm doing humiliating work in the worst place possible. Secondly, mighty man of valor, who are you talking to? Don't you see what I'm doing? You see, it didn't seem like the Lord was with him. And it didn't seem like he was a mighty man of valor. I wonder if Gideon didn't turn around and look if he was talking to somebody behind him, right? What does he say? I love Gideon's response here. Verse 11. He goes, where are all the miracles that our fathers told us about? You say the Lord's with me. Oh, yeah, it doesn't feel like God's with me. Where's God today? Why are we so oppressed by the Midianites if the Lord is with us? And you know what? I love this. This is, man, this is some fire from Gideon, right? He's just not saying, well, you know, okay, we're oppressed by the Midianites. Hey, man, whatever. All right, we'll just get along the best we can. No, Gideon, he's. He's like, no, this isn't right. This stinks that the Midianites oppress us. This stinks that that we're under this oppression. It shouldn't be this way. And we should be fighting. We should be working against it. And why isn't God doing more? Well, you know what? And it's as if Gideon is telling the angel this, and the angel's going to answer him back. Gideon, you're going to be the means by which God does this. It's really a beautiful scene. Gideon was bold enough to say, verse 13, He says, now the Lord has forsaken us. That's how he felt. God, where are you? Now, in truth, God had not forsaken Israel at all. In truth, it was just the opposite, right? Israel had forsaken God. But yet, I love it that it bothered Gideon that Israel was in that condition. He wasn't apathetic. He wasn't fatalistic, right? Isn't that where a lot of Christians are at? They're either apathetic, hey, whatever, man, or... They're fatalistic. Well, whatever God's going to do, he's going to do, and there's really nothing we can do about it. No way. Gideon said, it bothers me. I don't want it to be like this. You say I'm a mighty man of valor. Well, what's God doing? I want to get in line with whatever God's doing. Verse 14. Then the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours, and you shall save Israel from the land of the Midianites. Have I not sent you? So he said to him, Oh, my Lord, How can I save Israel? Indeed, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, Surely I will be with you, and you shall defeat the Midianites as one man. Wasn't that wonderful? First of all, verse 14, angel Lord looks at him, and I imagine the angel Lord looking at Gideon square in the eyes and telling him, You go in this might of yours. Now, I I wouldn't blame Gideon for chuckling. When the angel of the Lord said that. This might of mine? Do you see what I'm doing here? You know, Mr. Mighty Man of Valor, 
Mr. Mighty, who's going to deliver Israel. Angel, I'm threshing wheat in a wine press. You know, I'm not, you know, Mr. Action Hero here. I'm just a man trying to scrape by and not get all my stuff stolen by the Midianites. But listen, the angel of the Lord was not mocking Gideon when it called him a mighty man of valor, when he told him to go forth in the might that he has. You see, Gideon had might, all right, but not the might we usually think of. You know, humble people have might before God. People who care. People for whom sin and bondage and oppression, people for whom that bothers them, those people are mighty before God. People who are humble, like Gideon was humble. You got to give him that. He was humble, right? Those are the people that are mighty before God. People who are weak are mighty before God. Because God says this, my strength is made perfect in your weakness. Now listen, by human perspective, Gideon didn't have a lot of might at all. But by God's plan, he was a mighty man. To verse 15, Gideon asks a very logical question. Oh my Lord, how can I save Israel? Lord, how am I going to do this? You know, Gideon's right there. He can't save Israel. But a great God could use a small and a weak Gideon to rescue Israel. And there's the promise, verse 16. Surely I will be with you and you shall defeat the Midianites as one man. God's assurance to Gideon was not focused on building up his self-confidence. Don't you kind of love that? Hey, Gideon, come on, man. Positive thinking now. You can do it. Come on now, you know, let's, let's, happy thoughts now, Gideon. Come on, you can do this. Wasn't that at all? It's as if God says to Gideon, you know, Gideon, I know you look pretty bad right now. I would agree, but you know what? I'm going to be with you. There's a lot of us that could do with a lot less self-confidence and a lot more God-confidence. And that's exactly what God was trying to build up in Gideon right here and right now. Now, It's important to know that God sent us. It's even more important to know, just like God told Gideon in verse 16, that God is with us. And that was God's promise to Gideon. So, verse 17. Then he said to him, in other words, Gideon said to the angel, If now I have found favor in your sight, then show me a sign that it is you who talk with me. Do not depart from here, I pray, until I come to you and bring out my offering and set it before you. And he said, I'll wait until you come back. So Gideon went in and prepared a young goat and unleavened bread from an ephah flour. Then the meat he put in a basket and he put the broth in a pot. And he brought them out to him under the terebinth where he presented them. The angel of God said to him, take the meat and the unleavened bread and lay them on this rock and pour out the broth. And he did so. Then the angel of the Lord put out the end of the staff that was in his hand and touched the meat and the unleavened bread. And fire rose out of the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened bread. And the angel of the Lord departed out of his sight. Whoa. How about that? Gideon says, okay, Mr. Angel guy, you're all this greatness. Now, by the way, Gideon never calls him an angel. I'm being flippant when I say that. Gideon saw this person and saw a man. He didn't know that it was the angel of the Lord. He didn't know that it was the Lord himself appearing. So he wants some confirmation, right? Okay, great. Whoever you are, you're speaking to me, making all these great promises. How do I know that it's really God behind this? He goes, I'll tell you how you know. We'll do a little bit of an offering. So he says, here's the sign. I don't believe that it was wrong for Gideon to ask for a confirming sign. Let me tell you something. Later on, 
God is going to expect Gideon to put the lives of hundreds of men under his command and at his direction. You know what? If you're going to do that, you better know that God is with you. And I don't think it's wrong to ask for confirmation, right? I would never lead men to battle in the name of the Lord unless I knew that God was with me. Unless I knew that God had given me some sign. I don't think that it was wrong. I don't think it was unbelief for Gideon to ask for some confirmation. And God even granted him the confirmation. Did he not? Listen, this was a life or death issue leading Israel into battle against an enemy. I don't think it was wrong to ask for a confirming sign. Let me tell you, there are some times when it is wrong for us to ask for a confirming sign from God. Very wrong. If you're asking God to prove to you that he loves you. Friends, don't do that. Let me tell you why. Because God can give you no greater proof than what he gave to you at the cross. If you're waiting for God to outdo that, it can't happen. God has already given you the ultimate demonstration of his love. If you say, oh God, can you please just prove to me that you love me? What's God going to say? What do I got to do? I've done it all. Look back. I've proven it. I have demonstrated it. It's true for many other things as well, specifically detailed in God's word. Nevertheless, when it comes to guidance in things that are not specifically detailed in God's word, it's possible to look for and to receive confirmation in various ways. And that's exactly what the angel of the Lord did for Gideon here. Verse 21 says that fire rose out of the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened bread. That miraculous sign alone should have persuaded Gideon because uh, it was amazing. Now, I know that there are miraculous deceptions out there. But this miracle, together with the other aspects of the whole experience, should have persuaded Gideon that this was all from the Lord. And so, verse 22 very logically says, Now Gideon perceived that he was the angel of the Lord. So Gideon said, Alas, O Lord God, for I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. Then the Lord said to him, Peace be with you, do not fear, you shall not die. So Gideon built an altar there to the Lord and called it, The Lord is peace. To this day, it is still an Ophrah of the Abirazites. Verse 22 shows that before this, Gideon really didn't know who this was. But now he knew that it was the angel of the Lord. When he saw that fire come out of the rock and consume those things that were there for an offering, when he saw that the angel of the Lord, that that person in front of him wasn't hungry, but just wanted to show a sign, he said, wow, this is significant. I need to recognize this as being the angel of the Lord. So what does he say? Verse 23, peace be with you. Do not fear. You shall not die. Once Gideon recognized the identity of the angel of the Lord, then he was terrified. Isn't that remarkable? You see, before he knew it was the angel of the Lord, how's Gideon talking to him? Hey man, if the Lord's with us, then why are we so bad? When's the Lord going to do something? When's the day of miracles? What's this, that? Once he realizes who it is, he's terrified. Now friends, Gideon was not a coward. Gideon was a man with a lot of courage. Nevertheless, the reality of the spiritual world, the reality of an encounter of God so floored him that he was terrified in the presence. So what did he do? Verse 24, it says, So Gideon built an altar there to the Lord. Gideon did this as an act of worship, an act of consecration unto the Lord. And so he names that place 
The Lord is peace because God promised him peace there. Now, verse 25. Now, it came to pass the same night that the Lord said to him, Take your father's young bull, the second bull of seven years old, and tear down the altar of Baal that your father has, and cut down the wooden image that is beside it. And build an altar to the Lord your God on top of this rock in proper arrangement. And take the second bull and offer a burnt sacrifice with the wood of the image that you shall cut down. So Gideon took ten men from among his servants and did as the Lord had said to him. But because he feared his father's household and the men of the city too much to do it by day, he did it by night. This is interesting. The very same night that he had this dramatic encounter with the angel of the Lord and the dramatic evidence that it was in fact that the Lord was speaking to him, the angel of the Lord spoke to him and he said, listen, I'm going to guide you more. I'm going to tell you what to do next. By the way, don't you think it's significant that the angel of the Lord did not spell out the whole plan to Gideon at the very beginning, right? Gideon, you're my mighty man of valor. You know it's me speaking to you. I've confirmed it to you. Okay, great. Lord, what do you want me to do? And the Lord says, you await further instructions. Now, can I just say, are you okay with that? Because some people aren't. Some people like this. Okay, God, if you give me a five-year plan that I can really review and figure out, then I'm down with that. All right? Give me your five-year plan. I'll review it. I'll, I'll make sure it's okay. And if it's okay, then we'll do it. Are you totally okay with God saying, you just surrender to me and I'll show you step by step what you should do? That's what he did with Gideon. So the same night, the Lord said to him, God was guiding him along the way. And what did he tell him to do? Verse 25, I bet Gideon gulped when he heard this from the Lord. Tear down the altar of Baal that your father has. You see, in Gideon's community, Baal was worshipped right alongside of Yahweh. God called Gideon to get his own house in order first. Now, Gideon, you're going to be used by me to accomplish great things. But let me tell you what you've got to do first at the very beginning of it all. You've got to get your own house in order. Your father has an altar of Baal. Take care of that first. Cut down that altar of Baal. Now, on the one hand, it makes total sense to begin the work close to home, right? In the other sense, how do you cut down your dad's altar to Baal? Wow. What a tough thing this was God asking him to do. And so he says, offer two bulls. One is a sin offering. One is a consecration offering. But because of all this and because of his fear, he did it by night. He did it by night. And he did it under cover of secrecy because he feared that his father's household and the men of the city would prevent him from doing it if he did it openly. So he did it by night. So what happens? Verse 28 And when the men of the city arose early in the morning, there was the altar of Baal torn down, and the wooden image that was beside it was cut down, and the second bull was being offered on the altar which had been built. So they said to one another, Who's done this thing? And when they inquired and asked, they said, Gideon, the son of Joash, has done this thing. And the men of the city said to Joash, Bring out your son that he may die, because he has torn down the altar of Baal, and because he's cut down the wooden image that was beside it. But Joash said to all who stood against him, Would you plead for Baal? Would you save him? Let the one who would plead for him be put to death by morning. If he is a god, then let him plead for himself, because his altar has been cut down. Therefore, on that day, he called Jerubbabel, saying, Let Baal plead against him, because he's tore down the altar. Wow. What happens? Morning light comes. Verse 29 tells us that it was evident that Gideon, the son of Joash, had done this thing. They didn't have a hard time figuring out, did they? 
They came to the conclusion, well, Gideon is the one who chopped down this altar. He's the one who destroyed the image. And so verse 30, they called out, bring out your son that he may die because he's torn down the altar of Baal. By the way, isn't that a shocking expose of how strong the worship of Baal was in Israel? There were men willing to kill in order to defend Baal's honor. Where where were the men willing to defend the honor of Yahweh? I don't know. Gideon was one of the few. But to defend Baal? Well, men would be willing to do that. And again, I just get back to it. How, How tragic it is that people make such sacrifices for their idols, but they think it's such an imposition to make a sacrifice for the true and the living God. But again, this is where they were at. Bring out your son that he may die because he's torn down the altar of Baal. But what is Joe, uh, um, uh, what's the guy's name here that we're dealing with? Gideon, right? I was thinking of his father's name. What does Joash, the father of Gideon, say? He says, verse 31, listen, if Baal's a god, let him plead for himself because his altar has been torn down. That's a beautifully logical argument, right? It's like, okay, uh, who's the injured party here? Well, Baal's the injured party. Okay, let's let Baal do something about it, right? He's supposed to be a god. The ancient depictions of Baal pictured him with a thunderbolt in his hand, right? A lightning bolt. And so the idea was, you know, Baal, the mighty man who cast, you know, lightning bolts at people. It's like, okay, well, if Baal wants to do that against my son, then let him do it. Go right ahead. Who's the injured party? He might say, well, I'm the injured part, Joash, the father of Gideon, but it's okay with me. If Baal wants to contend the case against my son, then let him get it. Why do you have to fight on Baal's behalf? This is very similar to what happened during a great move of God in the South Seas in the 19th century. I heard the story from a, a late Dr. J. Edwin Orr. He explained how one tribal chief was converted to Christianity on these South Sea Islands. And what he did was he gathered together all the idols of his people, right? So he got all these wooden idols, and there they are, stone idols. And he set them in a great big circle, you know, great big audience before him. And this is what he said. He said, okay, idols, I'll tell you what we're going to do here now. He said, um... I'm going to destroy you because I believe in the true and the living God now. But I'm a fair guy, so I'm going to give you a chance to escape. I'll give you a five-minute head start. (laughs) So if any of you guys want to get out of the way, I'll give you five minutes. Go right ahead. What happened? Well, none of them ran away, and he destroyed all of them, right? Friends, idols are things that you have to prop up. The true and the living God will hold you up. What a difference between them, right? And so this whole incident gave Gideon the name Jerubabel. That's in verse 32. That means the man who fights against Baal. And so he was called Jerubabel. Verse 33. Then all the Midianites and Amalekites, the people of the east, gathered together, and they crossed over and encamped in the valley of Jezreel. But the Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon, and he blew the trumpet, and the Abirazites gathered behind him. And he sent messengers throughout all Manasseh, who also gathered behind him. And he sent messengers to Asher, Zebulun, and Naphtali, and they came up to meet him. Isn't that beautiful? Verse 34, the Spirit of the Lord came upon him. 
Friends, that's such a familiar pattern of the Spirit's work upon men under the Old Covenant. Under the Old Covenant, the Spirit of the Lord would come upon a certain man or a woman for a certain instance to to accomplish a certain thing. The the Spirit of the Lord would come upon select individuals, upon a prophet, uh, upon a king, uh, upon a general or a judge going into battle. It was a glorious thing. But did you know that we have a much greater promise of the outpouring of the Spirit under the New Covenant? Under the New Covenant, you don't have to be a prophet to be filled with the Spirit. You you don't have to be a warrior to be filled with the Spirit. Under the New Covenant, God says that my men's servants and my maidservants will be filled with the Spirit. That the old men will dream dreams and the young men will see visions. Isn't it glorious? Or is it the other way around? I forget. You get the point though, right? The outpouring of the Spirit under the new covenant is for everybody. Can I say, it's for you. This outpouring of the Spirit. The Spirit of the Lord coming upon them. So what did he do? He blew the trumpet. And because of that divine empowering, Gideon was able to gather an impressive army on very short notice. We're not going to get to it until the next chapter. But Judges chapter 7 tells us that 32,000 men came to follow him in battle. Isn't that amazing? Wouldn't you love to blow a trumpet and 32,000 men come to you, you know, help you fight? Man, that's an impressive army. Praise the Lord. It's a wonderful thing. You know the story of Gideon, don't you? The problem is that army was too big. But that'll be for the next time, right? Verse 36. So Gideon said to God, If you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said... Look, I shall put a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there is dew on the fleece only, and if it's dry on the ground, then I shall know that you'll save Israel by my hand, as you have said. And it was so. When he rose early in the morning and squeezed the fleece together, he wrung out the dew out of the fleece, a bowl full of water. Then Gideon said to God, Do not be angry with me, but let me speak just once more. Let me test, I pray, just once more with the fleece. And now let it be dry only on the fleece. But on all the ground, let there be dew. And God did so that night. It was dry on the fleece only, but there was dew on all the ground. Isn't this fascinating? Do you see what he says in verse 36? Very revealing. Verse 36. If you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said. Just think about those words for a minute. Okay, now God... I want to make sure that you're not lying to me. That's what he's saying, right? You said it, God, but just so I know that you're not lying to me, can you do a few more signs? Now listen, I don't know if you agreed with me or not, but I was pretty sympathetic to Gideon on his first request for a sign. Right? This is a big deal. You're leading men into battle. You're going to be a great deliverer. This is a big deal. First request for a sign, okay, great. The fire and the rock thing, beautiful. This request for a sign from Gideon, I am much less sympathetic to. He asked God to do a second miracle to confirm his word, and then a third miracle to confirm it again. Now, sometimes Christians use this phrasing from Judges chapter 6 to talk about seeking God's will through circumstances, and they call it, putting a fleece before the Lord. Have you ever heard that phrase? 
Well, we'll put a fleece before the Lord. And this phrase refers back to what Gideon did here. He used a literal fleece asking God to confirm his word with a sign. He put out the sheepskin seat cover out there, right? He said, okay, Lord, if it's really you, soak that sheepskin with dew and let it be dry all around. He wakes up the next morning and it's just like that. Oh, thank you, God. You know, but maybe, just maybe he's still lying to me. Let's try one more time. And he asked one more time, and he asked this time that the fleece would be dry and it would be wet all around. And it's just like that in the morning. Because verse 37, he says, Then I shall know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said. Gideon showed here that he had a weak and an imperfect faith. Now listen, for such a bold, life-endangering mission, we might understand and encourage the request for the first sign. But asking for a second sign and then a third sign, that just showed that his faith was weak. I don't know if there's any other way to describe it. Oh, Gideon, Mr. Weak Faith, asking God for signs again and again. And Christians, you've played that game, haven't you? Haven't you just asked God to confirm his will through some crazy kind of sign? A sign, first of all, that's totally obvious, you know? How about this? Okay, Lord, well, if you really want me to, you know, get involved with this girl or guy, you know, depending on your circumstance, if you really want me to get involved in this romantic relationship, well then, Lord, just let the sun come up tomorrow. If the sun comes up tomorrow, then I'll know it's the Lord's will. Sometimes you rig the game like that, right? Sometimes you rig it the other way, right? Okay, Lord, if you don't want me to get involved in that relationship, then let a midget in an admiral costume appear outside my door at 3 o'clock in the morning. You know, something like that. Friends, I find among Christians sometimes the greatest thing that they have real apprehension and fear about in their life is, how can I know the will of God for my life? I'm not even going to ask for a show of hands because I, I, I think it'd be a lot of us, maybe most of us here. There are Christians who ache and agonize over that. How can I know the will of God for my life? You know, I love that passage in the book of Romans, that tells us that we can prove the good and acceptable will of God in our life. You know, I I think most of the times, Christians obsess too much on the question, God, what is your will? Instead of just living their Christian life as it is for them right then. Listen, do you know what God wants you to do today? All right, if you know what God wants you to do today, then don't worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow is going to become today. It'll become today tomorrow. When that happens, do you know what God's will is for you that day? I think so. Then don't worry so much about the future. Listen, there may be beautiful reasons why God doesn't show you his will, your plan for future. Why God doesn't, and I hope you don't take this in the wrong way, why God doesn't show you crystal ball, right? And show you what it's going to be like in the future. It might be so mind-blowingly glorious that your mind just can't receive it. And you would tremble and doubt because of it. It might be involving such significant trials 
that you just couldn't face it and you'd give up right now. Don't you understand that whatever you know about God's will for your future or whatever you don't know about God's will for the future. Listen, God knows what you should and shouldn't know about it. I bet right now you can look back on some things in your life that you're living right now. And you say, I'm glad God didn't tell me about in the future. Other things you're saying, well, okay, God, I'm glad you did show me that. But what we know and don't know, he's in charge of that. So be at peace about it. Most Christians who are agonizing about the will of God for their life, not not every case. I think sometimes there's just things we could do to understand and to, and to discern God's will. But, but a lot of times, the biggest word to them is just, listen, just relax a little bit. Just stop stressing out about it. Do what you know God wants you to do today. And you know what? You will prove what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God for your life. You'll just live it out. And you'll look back on the last month and year and years as they go by and say, hey, you know what? I've been walking in God's will because I did what he wanted me to do for today. Now, Gideon's test, that was wrong because it was essentially a trick. And it had nothing to do with fighting the Midianites. You see, Gideon probably didn't understand it. But what he was doing was dictating his terms to God, right? But was he to say, well, God, you jump through these hoops and then I'll know you're not lying to me. Man, I, when you really think about it, that's an offensive thing for us to do to God. Jump through these hoops and then I know I can trust you. Well, you can trust him right now. now I also got to say this. Gideon did not keep his word. What did he tell God? He said, God, if you do this thing with the fleece once, then I'll believe you. God did it with the fleece once. And then what did Gideon say? Well, let's double or nothing, God. How about that? Listen, he should have kept his word. He went back on his word after God had fulfilled the first sign. But listen, aren't you struck with how merciful and gracious God was to Gideon? Now, I don't want to be too critical on it because he had a tremendous challenge in front of him. And if God would have spelled it all out what was in front of Gideon, Gideon would have just said, no way, I don't want to do it. But listen, I'll tell you this. I will say that Gideon's faith was weak but it was real. Did you know that Gideon is included in the register of great men and women in faith in Hebrews chapter 11? Here's the secret. You ready for this? Weak faith in a mighty God can accomplish great things. Now, strong faith, I think, can accomplish even better things. But tonight, if your faith is weak, if you're discouraged because you just have that tendency, oh, Lord, prove it. Oh, Lord, here's this fleece. Oh, Lord, here's this. Do this. Do that. If you're discouraged because of that tendency, you just say, listen, my faith is weak. Why don't you just take that weak faith and put it in a mighty God right here, right now, and you're going to see God do glorious things to you. Because what matters far more than the strength of our faith or the amount of our faith, what matters is whom we set our faith upon. I can just imagine there could be somebody here tonight. And you know what? You've got strong faith. There you are. You're Mr. Mighty Man of Faith. Here's your problem. All that faith is in yourself. I'll take my weak faith in the living God over your strong faith in yourself any day of the week. Because that's the greatness of the God we serve. Well, you're going to see God deliver uh, Israel through the work of Gideon. More on that next time in uh, Judges chapter 7. But listen, let's take 
whatever faith we have, whether it's weak, whether it's strong, turn it off of ourselves and put it on Jesus Christ, our Savior, who did that great work that we could never do for ourselves. He died on the cross to purchase our forgiveness, our rescue before God. 